May God's love be with you. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Romans, chapter 12, and there you will find our sermon text for the evening. It's good to be with you all this evening, and I hope that you will be encouraged by the Word of God coming to us from Romans chapter 12. In case you are all just tuning in, uh, we are halfway through our series on the membership vows that you find printed on the back of your worship order. We have already covered the first three of those membership vows, which deal with our commitments to Jesus Christ. And now we're going to switch gears and deal with our commitments to the church. And you'll see those in the last two membership vows. Today we're going to focus on the fourth vow. And the fourth vow says, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? As we have done throughout this series, we are going to turn our attention to the book of Romans in order to shed light on the meaning and the purpose of this fourth vow. If you've been tracking along, then you know that we have already covered in brief Romans 1 through 8, just in the first three vows. And today we're going to turn our attention to Romans 12 in our coverage of the fourth vow. And so if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 16. The word of God reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of it, of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in, a, in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
That is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Now I want to tell you quickly what we're going to do. There are basically five points that I want to make in this sermon. And I will tell you what they are up front. If you are serious about supporting the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability, here are five things that you need to do. One, live as a sacrifice. Two, lower yourself before God and man. Three, link yourself to the body of Christ. Four, love one another. And five, laugh and lament in all of your joys and sorrows together. And those are five things of many things that I'm highlighting from this passage of Scripture in Romans 12. The first thing I want us to see is that if we are serious about supporting the worship and work of the church to the best of our ability, the first thing we need to do is live as sacrifices. And we see this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We need to live and move and think like worshipers. That means we must be deliberately and intentionally striving to offer ourselves to God day after day. To use the language of the text, we need to present our body and mind, our heart and our soul to the Lord day in and day out. And that means even on the Lord's day. John Calvin's life motto was, My heart I offer you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. I'm sure it sounds much cooler in the Latin in which it's written, but I don't know Latin and I'm not going to try to read that. But I simply want you to see that he understood the essence of what Paul is saying here. I offer my heart to you, my life to you, my body, my mind to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. It means we do it with haste. We do it now, not later. We do it with sincerity, devotion, not holding things back. No hypocrisy, no faking it. In light of God's mercies towards sinners, this is our spiritual worship, as Paul says. Now, I want you to notice something about the word spiritual there. It is not the word spiritual in Greek. It's not a word that comes from the word spirit. It's put here because people are uneasy about putting the word that Paul used, which would be something along the lines of logical. This is your logical service. This is your reasonable service. In other words, in light of God's mercies towards you, it only makes sense that you would live this way. So laying down your life on the altar day after day becomes a pattern, becomes a routine. And you do it for Christ and the church. And you find that when you do that, it's ultimately transformative from the inside out. Paul says that by doing this, by living as a sacrifice, you then become enabled to assess 
discern, evaluate the will of God. It's not before. There are many people in life who want to know, what is God's will for my life? They want God to tell them what His will for their life is before they lay their life on the altar. But God says, no, you must trust me. Lay on the altar first, and then I'll tell you what the will of God for your life is. An easier way, by the way, to know what God's will is, is to take up your copy of the Scriptures and read it. And there you will find God's rule of life and faith for you. You will find out what the will of the Lord is. But in order to practice obedience by faith, you must be willing to get on the altar day after day after day. You must live as a living sacrifice. And so to ask what is the will of God is also to ask what is God's wish, what is God's desire for my life? What does God want? To put a finer point on it, we might say the question we ask as we climb up on the altar is, what does the Lord require of me today? What does the Lord require of me today? And that is the thing that we're going to do. The only way to know what God's will is for your life is to lay down on the altar. In order to lay down on the altar means you have to make yourself low. And that leads us to the next point. In verse 3, Paul says, lower yourself before God and man. So another way you can support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability is to lower yourself before God and man. Now you know as well as I do that many of us tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And it doesn't mean that we always think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It simply means that there are moments in our life, there are experiences in our life, there are times in our life when in that moment we think more highly of ourselves than we should be thinking of ourselves. We all have an inflated, elevated view of ourselves in some ways and at some times. We think we are more spiritual or more secure or more stable than we really are. We imagine that we're smarter than we really are. We imagine that we're stronger than we actually are. And taken together, that means that we are prone to be condescending and critical towards others. It means that we expect others to follow us or to serve us or to cater to us or to submit to us. But we don't want anyone expecting us to do that for them. This lofty attitude is nothing other than deep-seated pride. And yet we are called in this text to be sober-minded, to cultivate a lowly, realistic, even-keeled attitude about ourselves. You might not know this about yourself, but let me in love tell you the truth. You are probably never going to be the smartest guy in the room. I'm never going to be the smartest guy in the room. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. You don't have to be the strongest tool in the shed. All you have to do is think about yourself in light of God's tender mercies. And then you will see the truth about who you are. 
Let me help you with that. What does God think about you apart from Jesus Christ? That you are a sinner justly deserving His displeasure and without hope save in His sovereign mercy. That's what God thinks about you apart from His Son, Jesus Christ. No matter how smart or strong or stable or secure you imagine yourself to be, that's the truth. But what does God think about you in light of Christ? He thinks you are a saint resting upon Christ alone for your salvation. He doesn't take into account your strength, your stability, your security, your spirituality. None of that factors in. All that matters to God in His tender mercies is that you are in His Son. And for that and for that alone, He sees you as a saint. So do you see how the gospel cuts through the illusions of our lives, cuts through the mirage that we see of ourselves and clears our vision? When you see yourself in light of God's mercies, then you feel less inclined to put on airs or to puff up your ego or to bloat your resume or anything like that. In fact, when you see yourself in light of God's mercies, you feel more inclined to find your identity in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And how sobering it is to know that without Christ I am nothing but with Christ, He is everything, and that makes me something. Same for you. So it's having this lower view of ourselves before God and man that frees us up to walk by the measure of faith which God has measured out for us. So instead of walking by sight, instead of walking by imagination, instead of walking by ego, we then walk by faith. We walk in light of Christ. Instead of trying to save our life, we lose our lives. You lower yourself and lay down on the altar. And you do that because you're endeavoring to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit even as you support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. So keep a low view of yourself. Keep a low opinion of yourself. And I'll strive to do the same. For it's when we get low that we are most like Christ. That leads us to the next point I want you to see in verses 4 through 8. We live as sacrifices. We lower ourselves before God and man. And what's the next thing we do? We link ourselves to the body of Christ. Now, we've said the fourth vow is about your commitment to the church. It's you're about your commitment to the church, its worship and its work. But when we talk about church, we're talking about a living organism, not an organization. We're talking about the body of Jesus Christ, and that's the imagery used here. In Romans 12, we see the absolute necessity of linking ourselves to the body of Christ. Just as a, a limb from a tree, if cut off, will not live for long, so a Christian 
without a real connection to the church is not going to make it as a Christian for very long. To put it in more graphic terms here, using the analogy of Romans 12, a finger, an arm, or a foot that is detached from the body will die apart from the life of the body. And that is why each and every follower of Jesus Christ must link himself, link herself to the church of Jesus Christ. It is in this way that the body of Christ displays the varieties of God's grace in all of its unity and diversity. So to be very clear here, echoing Paul, we are not simply to lump ourselves in together with a group of people. We are to link ourselves into other followers of Jesus Christ and forge interpersonal relationships in a community in which we and others can thrive together. Each and every one of us is a member of the body of Christ individually. But we must link ourselves to other members of the body of Christ so that we can enjoy the communion of the saints with all of the grace and truth and love and peace and hope that come along with that relationship. God knows that we need each other in ways that we cannot even imagine. And in the body of Christ, God has already provided for us all we need by linking us to Christ and the church. He knows what we need long before we do. As the text says, all the members of the body have different gifts and none of the members of the body have the same function. But we all have the responsibility to use whatever grace gifts God has given us both to exalt the Lord and to edify one another for the glory of God and the good of the church. Now, I'm not going to take time here to unpack the meaning and the significance of all of the grace gifts that are listed in this text, but I do want to make a point here. Suffice it to say for now that some of those grace gifts, if you go back and look at them, you'll notice that some of those grace gifts are more tangible and more visible than others. And you will know that some are more subtle and invisible than others. Some are more cerebral. Others are more hands-on. Some are loud. Others are quiet. All are necessary. None is more important than the rest. All are interdependent. None is more essential, more important, or more necessary than any of the others. All of these grace gifts, all of the members who have these grace gifts are intended to work together for the good of the church. They're intended to support the church in her worship and her work to the best of their ability. How in the world can we do that? How in the world can people who are so different from each other, who are gifted in different ways from each other, who are different in terms of their ethnicity, their sexuality, their economy, how can all of these differences come together in any fruitful way? The answer is given in a word, in love. 
In verses 9 through 12, to summarize that section of this text, Paul simply says, love one another. When you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability, you are not just promising to support one holy Catholic church in a broad, generic sense. You are making a promise to support this congregation of God's people, to support the people of this congregation of God's people, to support the people God will send to this congregation of His people. So take a moment and look around at the men and the women and the children who are sitting beside you and near you, in front of you, behind you, around you. You are promising to support each other in the worship and work of this congregation. And to support each other in this endeavor means that you will lay down your life for one another, that you will make yourself lower than one another, that you will link yourself to one another in love. And it is only in this posture and only from that position that you will be able to uphold the worship and uphold the work of the church. Paul makes it clear that love must come out of our mouths and it must come out of our fingertips. It moves us to ask not what the church can do for us, but to ask what we can do for the church. It stirs us up to a holy competition among ourselves that moves us to ask, what is the most that I can do for others, not what is the least that I can do for myself? It keeps us from sitting back as mere spectators and moves us and calls us to get involved in the life of the church as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice as we move to the next point that this is to happen not only when things are good, but also when things are bad, when things are not so good, when things are terrible, horrible, no good, very bad. That is when it matters most. And that brings us to our last point, that we need to learn to laugh and lament in all of the joys and sorrows of our life together as a church. And you see this clearly in verses 12 through 16. It's in this last section that Paul gets raw and he points out some of the hard realities of life in a congregation. He makes it clear to us that being a part of the body of Christ does not mean that life is always going to be sweet and soft and easy. He makes it very clear that life often gets dark and painful. It gets difficult. There are needs and messes that need to be tended. You know this. You know this as well as I do. You see it in your own life. You see it in your marriages. You see it in your children, your friends, and your neighbors. You know that everywhere you look, you and the people around you are facing or will face or have already faced trouble. Trouble is coming. Trouble is everywhere. 
It is even in this congregation. And as much as we like to think of the church as a refuge from the world, a safe haven from the dangers and difficulties of life, we often find that in the church there is trouble. And the trouble arises not just because there are sinners who have gathered together in one place, but trouble arises because sin is in the world, enemies are out to get us, there are spiritual forces of evil attempting to bring us down. Trouble is coming our way. I want you to think of all the struggles and the growing pains and the heartache and the losses that we have experienced as a congregation over the past few years. This is just a part of congregational life and mess. It's not something unique to our congregation. If you get out and visit with pastors in our area, visit with people in other denominations, they will tell you that they too have faced similar trials and tribulations where they are. So we're not the only ones to have experienced trouble. Many others do as well. You know as well as I do that life in a congregation ain't no easy stroll in the park, is it? And yet here we are, still growing in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, in spite of it all, and perhaps even because of it all. So again, you don't need to remind you that the world is full of trouble. It's out there. It's in here. It's in here. Trouble's everywhere. And we've all been tested by it. No one is exempt from it. The question is, what will we do as a congregation when trouble comes our way? When it comes to us corporately as the body of Christ, when it comes to us individually as members, what will we do in the face of trouble? Some of you remember back, I believe it was the 80s when this song came out. I'm looking at some of you. The song says, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And sadly, many people misunderstand what that means. They think that the tough get going means that they can abandon ship and bounce off and cut ties or disappear, exit stage left, fade away, get lost, hide, or fill in the blank. That's what they think. When the going gets tough, it's time for me to find the safest way out. That's not what Paul says in this passage, is it? He says in this passage, if I'm summarizing accurately, that when the going gets tough, the people of God need to learn to laugh and lament in all of their joys and sorrows together. The gospel requires us to respond to hard times as followers of Jesus Christ, as imitators of Jesus Christ. So how can we do that? What would Jesus do in a situation like that? You take up the cross together. And you face the trouble together. And you walk into the storm together. You gather for worship. You declare God's praises. You come to the table. And then you scatter on mission together. And you do this joyfully, patiently, deliberately, sacrificially. You do it one for all, all for one, not every man for himself. Rejoice, Paul says. Rejoice. But there's also time to weep. There's also time to agonize. Why? Because we are sympathizing with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
We need to learn to laugh and lament in the circumstances of the life of our congregation. Now, it's good for us to be sober-minded, and I mentioned that earlier, that we should be sober-minded and not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But can I say something about sober-mindedness? It's, it's the word sober, not the word somber. You understand the difference, right? The word sober means even-keeled. You've got clarity of thought. Somber is very different. Somber is about dull and boring, brooding. We're to be sober-minded, but we're not to be somber-minded. We're not to be sleeping and dragging around. It's not good to be so serious that you can't laugh a little and laugh at yourselves. That you can't crack a smile or delight in the Lord or enjoy a good story or feel good about the work of Christ and His church in this place. We need to be sober-minded, but not somber-minded. Why so serious? So we need to know when to laugh. We know when to. We need to know when to lament as well. And not all of life is lamentation. Not everything is doom and gloom and sorrow. Although there is much of that. Much of life is also about laughter. It's about joy in the Lord, rejoicing in hope, even in the face of our trials. In imitation of God, we learn to laugh at the face of danger. How do we do this? Well, if we truly endeavor to live as become followers of Jesus Christ, we will support the worship and the work of the church by living as sacrifices and by lowering ourselves before God and man, by linking ourselves to the body of Christ, by loving one another, and by laughing in the midst of our troubles, just like Jesus. And that's where all this goes. It goes back to Jesus. We see that He did all of these things and more for the sake of His church. You never find Jesus anywhere in his life or ministry saying, you know, I don't like this community. I'm going somewhere else. These people just don't do it for me. I'm going to go find a better community of sinners. No, he never does that. He deals with the people who are around him. He makes the most of that occasion. He endured all these things and more for the sake of his church for the sake of his followers, for the sake of people just like you and you and you and even me. Now, in conclusion, I want to draw your attention to the very end of the fourth membership vow. Do you see what it says? To the best of your ability. I'm so thankful they put that in there. Uh, it's a safeguard for you. Because what that means is no pastor, no elder, no deacon anywhere can require more of you than you are able to do. To the best of your ability. That's all we're asking. Not to the best of the ability of the session or the deacons or anyone else. And as a congregation, it's to the best of your ability, not to the best of your ability as you compare to some other dynamic congregation. You just do the best you can do. That's all anyone's asking. You do the best you can. 
That's all we expect. And that's what you can expect from us as well, to the best of your ability. It means this. It means that you will support the worship and the work of the church to the best of your ability, not someone else's ability. That you will do this according to the measure of God's gifts of grace and faith for you, not according to the weakness of your flesh, not according to your personality type, not according to your tastes and preferences, but to the best of your ability as God's grace and faith are working in you. It means that you do this as an individual follower of Jesus Christ. We're not trying to obliterate individual persons here. You do it to the best of your ability as an individual follower of Jesus, not merely as a family member, and certainly not as a fan of Jesus, but as a follower. It means supporting the worship and the work of the church with your time and with your treasure and with your talent, not someone else's. You might have detected this in life that people think it's easier for them to, to, uh, to spend your time. It's easier for them to spend your money. It's easier for them to spend your resources. But they're yours to give. So give them to the best of your ability. In light of God's mercies, we know that we each have different skill sets and different abilities. Some of us are more mature than others. Some of us can give more than others. Some of us can teach better than others. Some of us can pray better than others. Some of us can visit better than others. Some of us can cook and host better than others. And on and on we could go. And to all of that, I would say on one hand, praise God. And on the other hand, so what? It don't matter. All that matters, all that matters is that you do what you can to the best of your ability. As a follower of Jesus Christ, all of you can do something. All of you can share something. All of you can offer something to support the worship and work of the church. And you can do it for the glory of God and the good of His people. Not long ago, I read an article on church membership. I think I shared it with you in our Facebook group. It asked the question of, did I join the wrong church or something like that? I can't remember the title. But I love the statement it made as a conclusion in the article. I want to use as a conclusion now. It says, joining a church is daunting. Loving others makes us vulnerable, and committing ourselves to a church immerses us in the needs of other sinners. Eventually, every congregation will find a way to get under our skin, frustrate us, or even wound us. And we will do the same to them. Our relationships will ebb and flow, as will our affection for the church. But the solution is not always looking for a better fit. Instead, we renew our passion and reignite our sense of belonging by holding ourselves to our membership covenant vows, sacred promises that bind even the wrong people together in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Now I ask you, do you... 
promise to support the worship and work of the church to the best of your ability? That's the question. If you're inclined to answer this vow in the negative, let me just say that while you might be a Christian, you cannot be a member of this congregation or of any other Orthodox Christian congregation in any fruitful or faithful sense. And here's why. Because if your unwillingness to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability, if you won't commit to that, it's going to come out in your life sooner or later. I speak from experience when I say I've been in ministry long enough to see these recurring patterns in people. I've noticed that there are people who will gladly make a commitment to Christ, but they will not make the same glad commitment to a local church. And here's what happens. These people usually end up church hopping and church shopping for a time, and then they end up at home alone. Why? Because they simply ask, what can the church do for me, not what can I do for the church? And they end up robbing the people of God by withholding their gifts, their talents, and their skills from the church. And it's that kind of non-commitment that leads to a spiritual form of casual dating at best or sleeping around at worst, and it never ends well. However, if you are inclined to answer this vow in the affirmative, let me say, go back to Romans 12 again and again, and you will see that there are many, many ways to keep this vow and to fulfill it, and to fulfill it in ways that will be good for you, good for your family, good for your community, and all of it will be done for the glory of God.